0: Well, open your Bibles to Hosea chapter six. We're going to spend one more Sunday in Hosea six before we jump into our uh, summer series through the book of First Thessalonians. I would encourage you to read First Thessalonians this week. That is not uh, that is not a super daunting task for anyone. That should um, be very doable. And, um, that will prepare you for the series we're about to jump into. So, um, we're doing, if you weren't here last week, I apologize. I'm not going to go into the whole backstory, but we're stepping into Hosea 6 for two weeks, um, really largely because it's, uh, it's just been something that's been very meaningfully to, meaningful to me personally over the last few months. And, um, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to share some of that with you. Um, I won't tell the backstory of all that's been going on in my life, uh, for those that weren't here, but I still trust you'll be able to benefit from, uh, looking at God's Word this uh, this afternoon, I want to start by um, showing you something that's uh, that's very personal to me, um, and I won't show you long. That's enough. This is a, a little uh, slip of paper, and it's uh, it's the the Orange Tree Golf Resort. I don't even remember where that is, but in August of August 15, 2006 is the is the date on this, and the title of this sheet is. Questions to ask myself about how I'm loving Kimberly. Kimberly is my wife. Uh, On on August 15th, 2006, Kimberly and I had been married for almost three years. And um, the reason that I have a paper like this, and the reason I have it still so readily accessible, is not because I'm an extremely thoughtful and loving husband, it's because I'm not. And it took me almost three years in my marriage to have the wisdom to ask my wife, like, what? Like, what would feel like loving you then? <laughs> I don't know if any husbands have ever been there before. Um, but uh, so, so Kimberly actually gave me a list of questions to ask myself. So I didn't come up with these questions myself, as I had been doing that really poorly for the first three years, years of our marriage. Um, I spent most of the first three years of our marriage assuming that I was doing what Kimberly wanted to feel loved I thought I was loving her really well. I, um, I, I think I washed the dishes when I dirtied them. Um, I certainly ate the food that she made for me, and I, I complimented her plenty on, on that, I'm sure. I took out the garbage. Um, we watched Bears games together. Um, we, would, we would watch uh, a rom-com, maybe five to 10% of the time that we watched a movie. Um, there were so many other things. Uh, I'm sure. <laughs> i 'm sure but i i I assumed that Kimberly must just be pinching herself the jackpot she has won in <laughs> these first three years of marriage and um, and, I, and and i, I don 't remember exactly the series of events that led to August fifteenth two thousand and six um, that led to the development of this list but um, but I, I think it 's fair to assume that I learned that i wasn 't actually loving Kimberly in all the right ways, and so um Hence, hence the list. I'll just read you the top three. Uh, these are questions Kimberly gave me to ask myself on a weekly basis, uh, to make sure I was loving her well. Am I, I asked for these. She didn't force these on me. Am I planning dates and quality time? Am I doing thoughtful things like notes, surprises? Am I, am I initiating prayer times and am I aware of Kimberly's prayer needs? That's just the top three. Nothing about the Chicago Bears, you might have noticed. Um, I didn't know my wife as well as I thought I did And uh, here I am thinking that as I march the trash out to the garbage can that she's glowing in love Glorious love this husband of mine. Look at him. Look at him loving me with that bag over his shoulder I think there's something similar that goes on in this passage in Hosea 6 As well as many places throughout scripture where God calls out a tragic misunderstanding among his people It's not so much a misunderstanding of what they're supposed to do and and not do it's worse than that It's a misunderstanding of what his heart is actually like And obviously What his heart is actually like will have huge implications for how people are to live So God wants us to know his heart and he wants us to share his heart that's what's going on here in this passage and elsewhere in the Bible. And we're going to see specifically here one, one very important part, aspect of God's heart that he wants his people to know. So read along with me. We, 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 we talked through verses 1 through 3 last week, if you weren't here. Uh, we'll focus mainly on 4 through 6 today, but I'm going to read the whole passage. So follow along with me. Hosea 6, starting in verse 1 come let us return to the lord for he has torn us that he may heal us he has struck us down and he will bind us up after two days he will revive us on the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him let us know let us press on to know the lord his going out is sure as the dawn he will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets, I've slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Would you pray this prayer along with me? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. and See if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. C.S. Lewis wrote in a book uh, where he was describing his own journey through uh, the process of grief after the death of his wife, he wrote these words. said, My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered from time to time. He shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast, which means idol smasher. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? God wants his people to know and share his heart. And sometimes that means confronting us with our wrong views and our wrong understandings of his heart. Verse six here that we just read is kind of the big reveal. Look at it again. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God has stepped up. We we looked last week at this this mysterious voice that sounded an awful lot like Jesus in verses 1 through 3 and then and then there's a new speaker in verse 4 and it's and it's the, it's the mouth of God speaking to his people. Look at the tenderness in his voice. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Ephraim and Judah were Um, designated titles for the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of God's people at the time that had been divided. And we have God stepping up here and being that great iconoclast that C.S. Lewis talked about, shattering wrong understandings of what he's like. And isn't that a loving ministry of God? When he lovingly steps up and says, you've got it all wrong. Not just it, you've got me all wrong. Pay attention to my heart. This is what I'm like. Now, raise your hand if you've offered a burnt offering in the past week. Okay. So, um, in order to make this a little more uh, understandable to us here, I'm going to put this in my own words. I think there's a slide that might uh, say the same thing. Um I think what verse 6 is telling us is that God doesn't desire our outward, hollow, shallow, heartless religion. His heart abounds with steadfast love and mercy, and he desires that ours do the same. Hosea 6, 6. So we're going to unpack that together for a few minutes. God wants his people to know his heart and share his heart. And the problem is sometimes we think we know what his heart's like, and we're just wrong. And when we're wrong about God's heart, we're not going to be right about much else. So take the Jews from Hosea's day, for example. They thought, apparently, according to verse 6, that God cared most about their religious duties, like offering sacrifices. Moses had given commands for such things that they were to follow. But somehow, by Hosea's day, these offerings have, somehow, have, have become nothing more than formal religious ceremony. Their hearts are no longer involved. They're just going through the motions, detached from the very heart of God that was behind the the giving of these commands in the first place. They no longer reflect God's heart. So even as they do the right thing, even in doing the sacrifice, the people have lost track of God's heart. Not only that, but as verse 4 makes plain, the people's own hearts have wandered from God. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. What shall I do with you? You can hear the heartbreak, the heartache, in the voice of God, there. Does your theology have room for a, a father who can be heartbroken over the rebellion and waywardness of his people? What shall I do with you, O oh people? Your love is so weak, it's so small, it's so short lived. You look my way in the morning and tell me you're mine, and by lunchtime you've leapt into the arms of another lover. You sing of your devotion to me on Sunday and you practically forget to acknowledge me until next Sunday unless you happen to need something first. What am I to do with you? Hosea's original audience wouldn't be the last people who would need to hear that question. It's hard for me to get too far into verse four before my heart cries out, what are you going to do with me, Lord? What are you going to do with my heart? When God's people lose track of God's heart, something terrible happens. We tend to become legalists instead of lovers. When God's people lose track of God's heart, we tend to become legalists instead of lovers. I think that's what has happened to the people in Hosea's day. I know that we come from all different backgrounds. Some of, some of us here relate more to the prodigal son and how we came to know the Lord. We were rebellious, we ran off, and then we came back and received the mercy of God. Some of us relate more to the, to the, to the older brother, right? We stayed dutifully home, doing the do's, don't and the don'ts, and we were annoyed at our little brother when he came groveling back because we'd been there all along. I know we've all come to Jesus from different directions, but let me tell you, all of us, once we've come home, we all are in danger of becoming legalists. That's a danger for all of us, no matter which direction you've come to Jesus from. All of us need to fight against the drift of believing that our duties, our attempts at righteous living, become the ground on which we stand before God. When we lose track of the heart of God, our religious legalistic lives begin to emit a stink that no one wants to be around. We lose our sense of calling and mission and we misrepresent the God to the people around us. And we become pretty miserable. Don't take my word for it. Ask the Pharisees. In case you don't know, the Pharisees were the religious leaders of Jesus's day 700 years later than when Hosea is writing. But these are the people that knew their Bible, followed the rules so well that they made up new rules just to be sure. They looked down on everyone who didn't live as well as them, and as a result, they completely lost track of the heart of God. They thought they were serving, and Jesus always re- reserved his sharpest words for the Pharisees. Two times in the Gospels when Jesus is talking to Pharisees, he quotes Hosea six, six. May have sounded familiar to you. Two times. This is the only only verse that I'm aware of that Jesus quotes twice from the Old Testament. Now clearly Jesus whole life demonstrated what it looks like to live in line with the heart of God, but these two snippets, these two uh, these two s- exact situations where jesus felt inclined to quote hosea 66 i think are pretty good places for us to start if we want to ask the question what does it look like to live in light of the heart of god so let's let's do that i think i've uh, i think that the text will show up above my head um, in a second but if you want to turn to matthew 9 we're going to look at matthew 9 first and and while we read two passages i want you to ask this question how do you know if you've lost track of god's heart Okay, so as we're reading these passages, just let that question be informing your your thinking. How do you know if you've lost track of God's heart? So first, Matthew 9. Okay, here we go. Read along with me, starting in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in the house, but sinners. So we have Jesus engaging in friendship and fellowship with a bunch of sinners and the religious people object. And they say, whoa, why is Jesus hanging out with people who are sinners when clearly we're more worthy of his time and attention? He must not really be sent from God or he would know that we're supposed to keep away from people like that. Now you may have noticed that in quoting Hosea six six here, uh, it's translated "I desire mercy" here, and that is just so that you're not confused, because the Hebrew word uh, that from from Hosea six is just a big word uh, that, that has. It's really hard to capture in one English word or one Greek word. It's the word Chesed, and and it has to do with this loyal, generous. Um, this loyal, generous, faithful love that's not deserved, but it's lavish, okay? And so um, when, when, when Jesus picks it up and, it, and out of his mouth it's, uh, it's translated here, I desire mercy, it's certainly that, but I want you to think bigger than just whatever you think of when you think of mercy. Uh, what I want you to think of is what Jesus is doing in this moment, in this picture, that kind of mercy, that kind of love that says way more about the lover than the ones being loved. So here we have the, the Pharisees pointing the finger and Jesus saying, go learn what this means. You don't know the heart of God. I think we can call this scene um, self-righteousness through separation. Self-righteousness through separation is something the Pharisees were really good at, right? They, their misunderstanding was uh, they thought they were pleasing God by keeping themselves separate from sinful people. From, from openly sinful, worldly people they thought were pleasing God by keeping our distance, looking down on them. And then Jesus shows up and draws near to those people and calls them friends, has dinner with them, hangs out in their houses. And when the Pharisees show up and cry foul, Jesus says, "Go go get to know God's heart. You've clearly missed something here. Jesus has come to rescue the people that the Pharisees dismiss and avoid. Self-righteousness through separation. We think we're honoring God by keeping safe distance from sinful people who we deem less worthy than ourselves in an attempt to preserve or bear witness to our righteousness. All right, turn a few pages ahead to Matthew chapter 12. Again, how do you know if you've lost track of God's heart? Matthew 12, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but only for the priests. Haven't you read that? That's in the Old Testament. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Haven't you read that? Didn't you pay attention? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. If you knew what that meant, you wouldn't have condemned the guiltless. Another tragic misunderstanding on the part of the Pharisees. We can call this one self-righteousness through rule-keeping. So here's the misunderstanding. The Pharisees thought they were pleasing God by observing and enforcing strict rules about Sabbath-keeping that went beyond what God had actually said. In fact, as they do elsewhere, when Jesus heals people on the Sabbath, they miss God's heart behind the Sabbath altogether. God didn't give the Sabbath restrictions to make hungry people starve or to prevent sick people from getting healed. That's what the Pharisees apparently thought. Uh, that's what they thought it was all about. What is that? What would that reflect about God's heart? just concerned with rules and restrictions for the sake of rules and restrictions? They missed it. God gave us a day of rest, a Sabbath, as a gift for weak and weary people and a reminder that God is our provider and we're not our own providers. Self-righteousness through rule-keeping. We think we're honoring God by heartlessly keeping rules in an attempt to preserve or bear witness to our righteousness. When we treat God as if he simply wants to be in some sort of a legal partnership with us, where we each pull our own weights, we make a mockery of the heart of God. The Pharisees seem to have thought that God gave us his word and commands to invite us into a contest to see who could be the most disciplined and miserable people on the planet. And they won, but it was the wrong game. Jesus came and destroyed every expression of pharisaical, legalistic self-righteousness. And he revealed what God's heart is really like. So you want to know what it looks like to know the heart of God a heart of steadfast love and mercy? Want to know what it looks like to walk in that? Look at Jesus. Look how he spends his time. Look who he spends his time with. Look at the things he doesn't get all uptight about. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So how's this showing up in your life? Here are a few questions to ask yourself if you're not quite sure yet. I think they'll appear on a slide. Here's some questions. Do I only spend time with people who think like me, speak like me, parent like me, spend like me? Do I tend to look down upon and distance myself from people that Jesus might actually draw near to? Do the people around me always feel like they need to do everything right by me in order to be loved by me? Those are at least a few questions that may be helpful in helping you understand where your heart might be t- tempted to move towards legalism. I want to tell you a little bit about how the Lord helped me see a little bit of some of this in my own heart recently. Um, I it's a little more um, personal sharing than um, than we, I would typically do, or than I'm even necessarily entirely comfortable with. But um, I, I mentioned last week that I came uh, to Hosea six on a Monday morning. Uh, it was a morning um, when I was starting to step back into some uh, responsibilities that I had been stepping away from, and the Lord spoke these words very, uh, very personally into my heart, very gently, but very, um, very personally. Um, that was a Monday morning. Two days before that, on Saturday, um, I spent most of that day moping around and feeling discouraged around my house, uh, feeling like I was a failure in lots of areas. Um, and one of those areas, that particular day, was in, uh, in leading my family in, in worship, leading my family to Jesus, discipling my, uh, my children. And, um, I, I, I love the I love the call that God gives uh, that God puts on a father to to disciple my kids and to lead our family in, in worship together um, but that particular Saturday, I was aware of how badly I was failing at it. I had my idea of what it was supposed to look like, and I was falling short of that and I was very discouraged. I was disappointed in myself and inevitably um, I, I'm sure everyone, that those in my home felt my disappointment. And by the end of the day, when Kimberly was like, "What's wrong?" I was able to mumble out a, enough words for her to understand what what I was um, what I was struggling with. And she helped, as always, helped me th- see things from a little bit of a different perspective. Um, that was Saturday. Then Sunday, the next day, I went to bed that night, knowing I was waking up the next morning to um, to take some steps forward. And I couldn't sleep. I was feeling very, very burdened by many things, um, and uh, and and I wasn't falling asleep. And um, true confessions here, you guys, this all stays in this room. Is that right? Are we good with that? All right. Um, I'm about to tell you. I'm about to tell you something that uh, more than you probably want to know about me, but hopefully it'll help you um, understand a little bit of uh, where I was when when God met me with this. So. This is silly. When I turned 35 years old, five years ago, um, I uh, was starting to feel some of the aches and pains of getting older, and um, I I, I didn't want to go down, you know, the the, the path of, like, full-body atrophy and, like, um you know rigid stiff body and i didn't have a gym membership and i was i was not being very consistent in in my in my exercise and so i made a rule for myself that day on my 35th birthday i made myself a rule i said i'm going to do 100 push-ups every day we're going we're gonna to fight this we're going to resist this we're going to resist decline my my workout uh my workout goals have changed dramatically since um my athletic days at this point i i basically want to be able to get out of bed without groaning uh, stand out, stand up out of a chair without too much of a grimace and not pull a muscle when I sneeze. <laughs> that may or may not have happened already. So I didn't have a gym membership, so I'm like, okay, 100 push-ups a day, I can do this, and here's the deal. If I miss a day, which is inevitably going to happen at some point, I'm going to make it up the next day. And so um, I'm a rule guy. And so when I make a rule for myself, I'm going to stick to it. And so sure enough, I start doing push-ups, 100 push-ups a day. And if I miss a day, if I get sick, if I, um, if we go on vacation, if life is just full and I miss a day, then tomorrow I do 200. And inevitably, through the years, there's been times where I fall more than a day behind. There's been times where I've fallen a couple weeks behind. There's been times where I've gotten as many as 2,000 push-ups behind. And I keep a little note on my phone, how many I'm down now, and then next time, uh, uh, next time I'm ready, I just start cranking it out and trying to catch up. You're weird. I'm not weird. Now, I'll just give one more humbling detail. Um, A few years ago, so when I made the rule, I didn't have a gym membership. A few years ago, a gym opened up real close to my house and I got a membership. Um, Seems like a perfect time to quit my rule, right? No. I started this thing. I am going to finish it when I die. And so I got a gym membership and I go to the gym And 75% of the time, I'm just going in and doing push-ups in the corner (laughs) because I'm behind and I need to catch up. I've got all this wonderful equipment around me. And you could find me cranking out push-ups in the corner. There'd be, honestly, days where I'd go to the gym and I would do nothing but push-ups for 45 minutes and then I'd go home. So back in early April, back to more recent time, I had just been so behind on push-ups, like 2,000 behind from like somewhere February, March, and I caught up. And the day I caught up felt so good. It always did. Like, those are like some of the best days. I caught up. I was at zero, and I got sick that day and fell two weeks behind like that. And so that night, Sunday night in April— when I'm laying in bed, not able to fall asleep, one of the burdens weighing on me that night is, I got to wake up tomorrow and go to the gym and start cranking out 1,400 push-ups. And I'm laying there just so burdened. And in that night, in that moment, in one of the weariest, most confusing seasons of my life, mind you, I came to my senses and I lay in bed and I said, I quit. <laughs> I look around, like, can I do that? I quit. I'm not going to do my push-ups. We're at zero, and we're never going up again. If I want to do push-ups, I'll do push-ups like a normal person. If I don't, I'm going to do the equipment that's there because I'm paying for it. And I quit, and I felt so free, and I went to the gym the next morning, and I enjoyed working out for the first time in a long time. Now, that's a silly example compared to more important things like discipleship of my family. But as I woke up that next Monday morning, after I got my first happy workout in, in a long time, and I sat there with God's word, and God spoke to me these these words, he brought the events of these past two days, my discouragement over my failures in my home, my ridiculous push-up rule that I put on myself. He brings them all to swirl in front of me, and he just gently says hey, just so you know, that's not me, that's you. I'm not doing that to you. You do that to yourself and it, 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 it wears you out <laughs> in so many ways. And I just received that from the Lord and, 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 and got, I think, a clearer picture of myself and of my heart and of how badly I miss God's heart in so many ways because I'm a rule guy, right? I make a rule so that I do things that I want to do. But I'm also a weak guy, which means that I fall short of my rules a lot. So I, what means is I end up living a lot of my life battling discouragement and disappointment. Always straining for my rules, my standards. And I think I usually have pretty good goals, right? Keeping my body healthy, I think, is a pretty good goal. But the rule that I made to achieve it turned into a slave master that actually began working against me even as I tightened my grip on it. Leading my family in worship, discipling my children, I think those are good goals. But the rules that I had set for myself to carry those out end up turning what ought to be a delight into drudgery and discouragement. And God gently says, hey, just so you know, that's not me. Go learn what this means. Go learn what I actually ask of you. Go learn what my heart's actually like. And you might find that your heart and my heart aren't always on the same page. So that's where I've had to wrestle. I think that I trust in my rules. I think the Pharisees did as well, right? Rules provide a false sense of security. I trust that they will keep me and guide me and protect me from going off course. For my fellow parents in the room, I think this greatly affects my parenting. I want my rules to do the work that only grace can do. I don't think this means I shouldn't have good goals or good plans or even helpful boundaries, but if at any point they lead me to miss the very heart of the issue, I need to humbly reevaluate their usefulness. Deciding to do 100 push-ups a day wasn't the problem. The problem started when I decided that somehow that was the only way to achieve my goals. When I started looking down on everyone else in the gym for having to use equipment to get fit. And the problem should have become incredibly obvious to me when I'm surrounded by all kinds of equipment that would actually help me achieve my goals better but I'm off in the corner miserably cranking out push-ups. I wonder how many of us find ourselves in a similar place, but perhaps in more important parts of life. We've walked with Jesus so long that we've accumulated any number of rhythms and routines along the way. And along the way, those rhythms and routines have, we've come to believe that it's actually those things that make for a God-honoring life. They're probably good things aiming at good goals, but have they become lifeless? Loveless? If you snapped out of it like I did that night and looked around you, would you see that there's actually some new equipment, some new opportunities all around you that may actually breathe fresh life into your walk with the Lord? God's not interested in your religion. He's not impressed by your separation from sinners or your rule keeping. He wants you to know his heart and he wants you to share his heart. And his heart is love. His heart is mercy. There are a whole lot of good things to do with your life. And we're called to do as disciples of Jesus. But if anything you're doing in the name of Jesus doesn't look a whole lot like loving God and loving others, you may have gotten a little lost somewhere along the way. Let me give you a few more questions for reflection that I think there's a slide for as well. Where in my life as a follower of Jesus am I simply going through the motions? Where has love been replaced by legalism? Where am I more devoted to trivial things than to acts of mercy? Where am I trusting in rules to accomplish what only grace can? Let me say again what I said at the outset. God doesn't desire our outward hollow shallow heartless religion his heart abounds with steadfast love and mercy and he desires that ours do the same and you know what god is really good at he's really good at rescuing legalists from their slavery he's really good at drawing people's hearts back to his heart and reminding us what he's really like that's what we were talking about last week. That's what we're talking about again this week is just this invitation, this sweet invitation that God gives us to just press on, press on to know me, press on to know what my heart is actually like. And you know what? Sometimes that's gonna feel like your view of God gets shattered because we have this tendency to add all these things to, to God's heart, to what we think it means to follow him. And we lose the very heart of God in the process. And we become miserable. We become pharisaical. We become hard to be around. We lose the life that comes from knowing God, knowing his heart, walking in the good of who he is. And here again, we have our patient and gentle Lord saying, hey, go learn what this means. Go learn what I'm like. Go pay attention again. Go watch Jesus. Go watch Jesus. He He showed you what I'm like. Go read the Gospels again and pay attention. How much does your understanding of me line up with Jesus' understanding of me? And be ready for the gentle, kind, confrontational Holy Spirit to show up and show you what you might not even realize is there. Press on to know him more. Press on, to know the Lord. He's better than you think. Whatever points in your walk with Jesus feel like drudgery right now, I wonder if there's something there to pay attention to. I wonder if the the Lord wants to tap you on the shoulder and be like, hey, just so you know, that's not me. That's you. Press on. Keep coming back. Keep paying attention to my heart. And be willing to let go of whatever you have to let go of. Sometimes it's hard, trust me. It's hard to to stop doing push-ups when I've been doing them for five years. I felt like I was cheating somebody. Press on. Live in the good of God's heart for his people and walk in it. It's so much better. So much better to walk in steadfast love and mercy than to walk in self-righteous separation and self-righteous rule-keeping. In order to keep this sermon from being really, really long, um, I'm going to I'm gonna throw a few passages at you for further reflection this week. Things that I wanted to, to keep adding and building a case here uh, because God's word makes this point so often. But if you're interested in further reflection this week, I think there's a slide for that as well. Um, Psalm 46 through 8, there we go. Psalm 51, 16 through 17, Proverbs 21, 3. Isaiah one 11 through 11-17, Amos 5, Matthew 23, Mark 12, Hebrews 10. Might be good places to, to, to visit this week if the Lord's doing this in your heart. Uh, this, is not, this is not an isolated moment in Scripture where God says, you guys don't get it. You don't get it. You're doing all these things, and you know what? I hate them because your heart isn't in them. You're missing the point. I will stop preaching those passages. Um, but there's one passage I am going to read uh, as we close and move towards the Lord's Supper. So if you're serving the Lord's Supper, please go ahead and uh, come and take your places. Um, if you're here and, and you're not following Jesus, you're not walking by faith uh, in Jesus, we're glad that you're here and um, recommend you being honest about that and not coming up and taking the Lord's Supper with those who are following Jesus. Um, but I would invite you to stay in your seat and, um, and, and consider uh, what the heart of God might really be like, and maybe even compared to what you thought it was like in, in, previously. Um, maybe some of the stuff that, that we looked at today is surprising you because you do think God is just gives rules because he likes making people miserable. But maybe if that's you, I just encourage you, even talk to God and ask him to show you what his heart is like, and you can stay in your seat and do that. For those of us who are walking, uh, living by faith in Jesus, and will come and take the bread and the cup, um, let's remember this, that there is only one sacrifice that has ever mattered for us. There is only one sacrifice that has ever mattered for us. That's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Hebrews 10, 1 through seven, says this: For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities. In other words, he's saying those things in the law they were just they were just a, they were just a glimpse of what was to come, just a shadow. Sacrifices, yeah, those were just to point you to Jesus. Those sacrifices weren't actually the main event It's the one sacrifice that's coming that those were pointing you to those are only a shadow of the good things to come Not the true form of those realities It can never by those same sacrifices that are continually offered every year. It can never make perfect those who draw near Otherwise, they wouldn't have ceased to have been offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year they serve their purpose. They remind us of our sin. But it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and then he quotes Psalm 40. The writer of Hebrews puts David's words from Psalm 40 in Jesus' mouth, and he says this. Jesus says, sacrifices, as he talks to the Father, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. But then I stepped up and said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus understood the heart of God. He understood that no animal sacrifice could ever cleanse anyone from sin, that it was all pointing to him. And he took David's words from a thousand years earlier and stepped up and said, here I am. You've given me a body. You've prepared it for me so I could be the sacrifice, so I could be killable, so I could be the only sacrifice that my people have ever needed and will ever need. And that's what we come to today when we take the Lord's Supper. We're remembering what Jesus has done for us as he hung on the cross, reconciled us to the Father through his death. And we're participating in it. We're stepping into it and saying, Yeah, I'm with you. I'm united to you. Your death is mine and your life is mine. And I'm with you and I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm pressing on to know the heart of the Father. I'm with you. I'm watching you. I'm empowered by you. And I'm living with you and for you. Let's press on to know the Lord. I will follow. That's what we're doing as we come. So join me in prayer before we come and take the Lord's Supper.